The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. Today is the 25th of June uh, 2019 and um, this evening we'll just be taking a look at, at the precepts. We're doing this in preparation for our Matariki Jikai, which is on the Sunday uh, right after our seven-day session, so just a little under two weeks away. It's going to be on the, the 7th of June. And I realised that um, this was the only chance I had to, to, to talk about uh, Jukai. Sometimes we have a whole bunch of Teishos leading up to the ceremony. Um, so um, that's why we're talking about this today. I had been looking at, at talking about uh, mindfulness and there's a new book come out, it's called uh, Mick Mindfulness, How Mindfulness Became the New Capitalist Spirituality by uh, Ronald Purser, who's an who's a academic in a business school and also a Buddhist. Um, his, the book's not out, actually out yet, but there are some excerpts from it, it's quite interesting. Um, but I felt I should postpone that um, talk to another day. Um, but then I found the two discussions overlapped in a certain way, so you're going to get a little bit from McMindfulness um, as a way of bouncing off on um, the topic of, of the importance of ethics and of precepts. Um, when I, when I started to look at this, this, um, these excerpts from the McMindfulness book, I was just reflecting on this term, McMindfulness. Um, it's really quite pejorative. Um, I, first, I think I first heard Mick added to a word in this way um, around the mid-90s when I was living in, in Rochester in upstate New York. And I remember being with a, with a friend uh, driving out out to the country outside of Rochester and passing by this housing development um, uh, that had just been put in and, and the person who was, I was with, friend, um, described the houses there as McMansions and they were described in this way because they were, they were sort of um, all the same, mass-produced, um, oversized, ugly, uh, pretentious, um, crammed together cheek by jowl, um, and and so they had some shared some characteristics you could say with McDonald's food, um, not very healthy, not really very nourishing, uh, sort of more like so-called food rather than actual food, as just as these as these these quite awful houses didn't really look like they would were homes, they looked more like status symbols or um, I don't know what. But so that's this, where this term comes from. So it's this book it seems is a, crit a critique of the way that in certain places, and we have to qualify it, mindfulness has sort of become commodified, um, monetized, um, standardized like, like hamburgers that come out of McDonald's um, and certainly packaged and marketed attractively but um, perhaps not quite so healthy as as they seem or it seems. 
But where it over, overlaps with our discussion of the precepts is that um, one of the major concerns, and this has been around for quite some time, about um, secular mindfulness is that um, it's become kind of detached from the, the rest of Buddhist teaching. And um, looking the, into this, not so that we can be fulfill kind of superior to this, but um, it, in a sense can be just a way of um, giving ourselves a bit of a warning to make sure we don't have, we don't um, do the same thing in our practice. Practice it may be for some relief from our stress, um, but not um, uh, practice it in a way where it can really um, transform our lives. Um, one of the one of the ways that uh, mindfulness is tends is embedded in the teaching as is part of the eightfold path. Um, which literally, if you look at the Pali, it's more like uh, meaning a noble path of eight limbs. Um, so e all of these limbs are uh, uh, considered to be vital. And they, they, they all interrelate with each other too and overlap. But the seventh among the eight is right final mindfulness. Though this and right mindfulness, not just any mindfulness, not just paying attention, because a, a cat burglar may be very mindful, very, very much paying attention, but that doesn't mean the mind, that mindfulness is, is um, the Dharma. So this right is important, and it's this is how we commonly translate it. But actually, the the original word is um, closer to uh, complete or whole. So. Mindfulness that doesn't leave anything out might be a good translation. And in the classical teachings, it's associated with, with equanimity. So it's not mindfulness um, of, um, say, eating something that we like and, and, and uh, um, attaching to that, but being able to um, regard whatever we are experiencing with an even mind, so whether it's something pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And if we look, if we look a bit into this Eightfold Path, we find that it's made up of, th of three kind of groupings. Um, we've got right view and right aspiration. Those are considered to be the wisdom act act um, aspect of this eight this eightfold path and they come at the beginning so very important to have the right view and then out of that review, right view the correct kind of aspiration or complete whole aspiration so seeing that we suffer is the beginning of right view and then aspiring to find a way um, out of that suffering you could say is um, right aspiration so the view isn't isn't much good unless it has some kind of aspiration attached to it but those two are considered to be the wisdom aspect and then there's three in the middle 
right speech, right action, right livelihood. And they're the ones that deal with ethics. So they come next, uh, Sheila. And then the last three are the ones associated with, with the way in which we cultivate the mind. So right effort, then the right mindfulness, number seven, and right concentration, number eight. So uh, mindfulness comes um, if, it's, if it's complete whole mindfulness, it kind of comes along with these other aspects. So um, three out of the eight have to do with ethical behavior. Um, and two have to do with, with, with wisdom or insight, seeing things clearly. So um, just going to, to um, just this one little bit from the, from the mindfulness book to kind of um, launch us, when we, just this one short paragraph. And this is from a little article by a um, Zen teacher called Dosho Port, who has a blog. And um, he's, he's just um, summed up the book and quoted some pieces from it. This is one of them. So this is what um, Ronald Purser writes. Um, the, con the conspicuous absence of a path for ethical development in the secularized mindfulness movement creates a moral vacuum, a belabored, fo belabored form of self-surveillance being in the present moment displaces ethical reflection, severing the chain from past to future forethought and care, vigilant awareness of the consequentiality of one's actions, and striving to eradicate unwholesome mental qualities, all basic Buddhist aims, take a back seat to just being mindfulness, being mindful, being present, and other platitudinous edicts like radical acceptance. He goes on to to compare mindfulness with with um, with Donald Trump, but I think he goes a bit far with that. So I'm not going to read that part. <laughs> so so anyway, if we look at this, if this this passage is a jumping off point. So he he says what's lacking, what can be lacking, in in the mindfulness movement is a path for ethical development. That's where, in our tradition, the precepts come in because they are, or they can be, I should, should say, they can be a path uh, for ethical development, depending on, on how we approach them. Uh, the ceremony that we're going to have in a little under, under two, two weeks is, we could say that it's a small but a significant part of that path. It's, it's allows us to, it reminds us of um, the precepts and it allows us to um, reflect. He talks up here about ethical reflection. Um, the part that probably is the most um, 
focused on ethical reflection in the ceremony is the little uh, repentance ceremony that we do. We do a more elaborate one at New, New Year's, a simplified one in this Jukai that we're going to be doing in a couple of weeks. Um, but we have um, in it, in the, the one soon, um, a repentance gutter that we uh, repeat nine times and it goes, all evil actions committed by me since time immemorial, stemming from greed, anger and delusion, arising from body, speech and mind, I now repent having committed. So it's a way of, it's a way of, um, of just uh, recognizing, um, even though we don't know what they are, what, what, it, what kinds of things um, we may have some sense of some of them, but um, not. We we can't. Um, most of us can't can't don't remember our past lives. Um, but we recognise that that we've caused caused different kinds of distress to ourselves and others, and we just as a as a blanket thing just release that stuff. Let it, let it go. And we mentioned the three, the three core causes of our suffering here, greed, anger and delusion. And then the classical way that they're classified and in, 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 um, grouped Rising from body, speech, and mind. So our our, our aim here is to to leave things the, these things behind as much as possible, to release them, and to begin and come to the Jukai ceremony itself, the central part of it, um, uh, refreshed in some sense, starting starting again. Which of course we, is something we can do any time we want. Start again, but it's it's more powerful when you when we do it in a ceremony such as Jukai. Um, Person speaks um, a little disparaging here of of radical acceptance. Um, this is something that um, I think is actually kind of quite a useful phrase at times. But it's important to understand it. Um, if you, what we can practice radical acceptance with is just what's happening in any given moment, the contents of our mind, our circumstances right now. Neither of these can we can we control, and so just to accept whatever is arising, and then work with it, um, can be helpful rather than, than um, blocking what is there, blocking our thoughts, blocking our feelings, resisting what's going on, what we're, 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 what we're faced with. But it's a big mistake to think that, therefore, if we, if we practice radical acceptance, then we just go with the flow. Or that we can just be kind of spontaneous, like those crazy Zen masters. 
actually, to, to, we 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 need to use our discern, discernment um, to to examine our our actions, our our thoughts, our speech, and um, connect the dots as much as we can. So, uh, to work intelligently with the feedback that we get day by day, moment by moment, and and try as much as possible to, to live um, harmlessly and um, to encourage others to live harmlessly as well, to speak up where we're needed. And, and the precepts that we have, the, the 16 precepts, provide a kind of framework for making those discernments, they're they're um, because because um, um, the, the the third part comes as as a, as a number ten, a list of ten. Sometimes people mistakenly think that they're commandments, but rather than being prescriptive, they're, they're descriptive. They of of enlightened behaviour, how a Buddha would act. Um, and in that sense, they're very exalted um, sets of guidelines. We're not going to fully uphold them at all times unless we fully awakened. Um, but the way that we can use them is as kind of um, protections. They're, they're pro protective of us, our mind stream, and of other people as well. At the, at the core of the ceremony, um, there are these 16 precepts, and they're broken down into the three treasures, which I'll talk about in a minute, then the three general resolutions, and then the 10 cardinal precepts, which, which really just unpack the general resolutions and give them a bit more detail. But let's just have a look here at the first, at the, at the three general resolutions, because they're really like the, the kernel. Of, of the process. And the three are, I resolve to do no harm, I resolve, resolve to do good, and I resolve to liberate all living beings. And there's this kind of progression that happens with these three. Um, I resolve to do no harm, that's like the, that's like the bare minimum. To, um, Avoiding, avoiding um, non-virtue, you could say. So, um, so it works at maybe it just um, not being so self-centered, you could say. We're going to, to erode our, our um, the ways in which we are selfish in our lives. But then I resolve to do good. So that's something a little bit more active, and we're moving from just refraining from um, harmful actions into um, cultivating something a bit warmer than that, some, some loving kindness, being of benefit, connecting, opening. But then there's a, another step beyond that, which is the third of these of these um, resolutions. I resolve to liberate all living beings, and and this is where we move from 
um, a, a kind of the personal level um, to something much larger, to put bodhicitta, this is the mind of enlightenment. And it's particularly the mind of enlightenment in the sense of waking up in order to help others wake up, in order to relieve suffering. So it's, it's where we move into the, to the realm of the, our bodhisattvic vow. It's beyond the personal, it's beyond virtue and non-virtue. Um, we start to, to touch on um, what might be described as, as universal compassion. Really, um, the the test of our of our practice, our sitting practice, um, is not so much the states that we go through when we when we sit, but um, to what extent do we do we bring our insight and our uh, insights and our and our presence of mind, our mindfulness. Um, into our relationships. To what extent do we do we realize these these three resolutions in our interactions? Um, Master Sheng Yin he describes this um, uh, fulfilling of this third resolution, um, which is really our, our our bodhisattvic vow, is helping sentient beings in all kinds of situations and simultaneously refining ourselves. So they, they come they come together, these two. Uh, Master Xing, you know, so I've, some of you will have heard this before, but he brings, he, he highlights uh, what are known as the four proper exertions. And um, sometimes known as the four right efforts. And so they relate to that, that, that strand of, on the Eightfold Path of, of right effort. But um, the way he phrases it quite transforms what it's talking about um, into something very much to do with how we interact with each other and not just at personal relationships, but relationships beyond the personal society, how we engage in, in, uh, in uh, issues. And here's how he, he um, phrases these. The four proper exertions. One, to help others to avoid non-virtuous acts they have not yet performed. Two, to persuade others to cease performing non-virtuous acts. Three, to encourage others to engage in wholesome acts not yet performed. And four, to urge others to nurture and expand those positive endeavors which they are already performing. So obviously if you're going to do this, this urging and persuading, you've got to be doing all of this for yourself. Um, but it points to um, something bigger than just being virtuous ourselves, but actually recognizing the way in which um, this helps, this is helpful to um, everyone and that, that to, to not act harmlessly and helpfully is, um, is 
painful for the person who's not doing it as just as much as it is for the for those who are um, receiving the results of these actions. Sometimes, sometimes people, when they hear about this bodhisattva vow, then it's, it's a vow we take pretty pretty much every day. They ask, um, it's very, I hear this quite often, is how can I, can I think about being a bodhisattva when I can't even help myself? And um, I think we all feel like this at times. Um, but in Buddhism, one of the things that's very, very important, and it's that second of the Eightfold Path, right, aspiration, is intention. And, and this is really, really important in, in our cultivating of bodhicitta. Um, Master Shangyin says, if, if your intention is active, persistent, and strengthened with vows, eventually helping others becomes effortless and natural. So it gives us a little kind of formula that, that for um, working here. If your intention is active, persistent, and strengthened with vows, He also makes the point that um, we don't have to be completely um, kind of have sorted everything out for ourselves, um, have done all the work in order to be able to uh, help others. Actually, having gone through suffering, going, gone through being vulnerable, um, often are helpful when we when we are wanting to um, help others. He, he gives an example of um, a person dying of cancer um, doesn't have to cure her cancer in order to help other people with cancer. She just, she can help out of her experiences in struggling with the disease. So helping sentient beings in all kinds of situations and simultaneously refining ourselves. And these steps of moving, moving beyond our, our kind of self-preoccupations, um, beyond the personal, but beyond self-improvement, and, and working to create conditions in which we can all thrive. Um, some of you know that on uh, on Thursday I I was got to go to a meeting um, with the Prime Minister and the Minister of um, Ethnic Communities, and it was just it was they were consulting with religious leaders, and I was there as as chairperson of the Buddhist Council. But uh, at one point they were talking about more funding that's being put into various areas. Um, including the ethnic communities, but 
Um, she also mentioned, Prime Minister also mentioned the well-being budget and how this was being scoffed at by many, but that Treasury now has to consider spirituality as a factor in uh, people's well-being. And it, it struck me as extraordinary to think um, of treasure, people at Treasury having to um, consider well-being uh, and spirituality. Um, we hope they don't try to count it. Um, but, but how wonderful if we can move, if the whole society can move in the direction of really thinking in terms of uh, what brings benefit. Because that attitude is, is um, one of the things that brings benefit. Just to do um, go through the, the bits of the ceremony that we haven't talked about yet. Um, right at the very beginning of the ceremony, um, it starts with, with, with uh, people coming up to the, to the altar and offering incense and, and offering, a, uh, offering dana to the teacher. And this is, this is a way of, just a way of, of giving a, a kind of concrete expression to um, gratitude for the, the Buddha Dharma. It is, it is very rare to come into contact with this teaching. And so at the beginning of the ceremony, we just acknowledge that and, um, and our, our commitment to upholding the Dharma. Um, so we're not here, um, we're not here as, as um, consumers of the Dharma so much as we are as sustainers of the Dharma. We talked about the repentance that, that comes right after that. Um, and then, then um, the beginning of our, of our 16 precepts, the first three are the three refuges. And this, this taking, the, taking refuge is, is a fundamental uh, practice across all of Buddhism, along with the first five of the ten precepts. That's what we share with pretty much with all the different schools of Buddhism. We say, I take refuge in Buddha and resolve that with all beings, I will understand the great way whereby the Buddha seed may forever thrive. We can understand this, this taking refuge. Um, to take refuge in something is to go where we feel um, embraced, protected. Um, as, a, as a child will, will, will um, take refuge in his mother's or his, his father's arms. It's where, where we feel kind of, um, it's a, a deep visceral kind of trust not, not blind faith, because in Buddhism, 
faith is based, um, true faith is seen to be based on our experience. So our experience, as our experience of the efficacy of the practice grows, we can have more faith in it. Um, and in terms of um, taking refuge in Buddha, it's really, um, it's really faith in our capacity to, to go in, in the direction of waking up, of compassion, wisdom, beauty, virtue. Um, the more literal understanding of taking refuge in Buddha is that we're, we're taking refuge in, in um, the historical Buddha Shakyamuni, who lived 2,500 years ago, this great teacher. But uh, more fundamentally, we're taking refuge in, in um, Buddha nature, our own innate Buddha nature. We say, we understand the great way whereby the Buddha's seed may forever thrive. So we're really taking refuge in um, something that is in us, this Buddha seed. I could say uh, our Buddha nature is, is, as we said in Master Hakuin's chant, our true self that is no self. Something, something that in, in us that isn't confined just to being inside us. It doesn't have a form, it doesn't take up space. Um, it isn't born, it doesn't die. Um, but is, is unbroken. Thich Nhat Hanh says, he says um, something about this, he says, um, what is not wrong with us is always there. What is, what is not wrong with us is always there. What is not wrong with us is always there, but it does need to be brought forth. And this is, this is why we call it the Buddha seed. It's something we have to, have to nurture um, and, and allow to, to grow and branch and uh, bring forth leaves and, and, and flowers and fruit. The great way refers to this path that we're on to free ourselves and to, from our, from our self-obsession, to allow this, this um, plant that is our true nature to, to blossom. And we say, I take refuge in Dharma. And, I, and with all beings, I will, enter, I will enter deeply into the Sutra treasure whereby my wisdom may grow as vast as the ocean. So these three, these three um, treasures, the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, that we take refuge in, very much overlap. So um, here, in taking refuge in the Dharma, we're really entering this path of transformation, the path to end suffering. And, and so we, we resolve to enter deeply into the Sutra treasure, which is just, one, one way of understanding it is the words of the Buddha, it's, it's the content of the sutras. 
but in Zen we also say it's it's taking refuge in the sutras recited by seagulls and the wind in the trees and um, the traffic noise outside to really hear those sutras and and take them in then then our wisdom may may grow as vast as the ocean It's not that we have to acquire that ocean from somewhere, but that we, ha we again, that we must just um, see it, touch it, swim in it. Here's what um, Thich Nhat Hanh says about um, taking refuge in, in Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. He says, in Chinese and Vietnamese, practitioners always say, I go back and rely on the Buddha in myself. Adding in myself, this is or taking refuge, in myself, makes it clear that we are, are ourselves the Buddha. When we take refuge in the Buddha, we must also understand the Buddha takes refuge in me. Without the second part, the first is not complete. There is a verse we can recite when planting trees and other plants. I entrust myself to earth. Earth entrusts herself to me. I entrust myself to Buddha. Buddha entrusts herself to me. To plant a seed or a seedling is to entrust it to the earth. The plant will live or die because of the earth, but the earth also entrusts herself to the plant. Each leaf that falls down and decomposes will help the soil be alive. When we take refuge in the Buddha, we entrust ourselves to the soil of understanding, and the Buddha entrusts himself or herself to us for understanding, love and compassion to be alive in the world. Whenever I hear someone recite, I take refuge in the Buddha, I also hear, the Buddha takes refuge in me. I think this is a very helpful um, way of, of understanding um, these refuges, that, that we, are, we take refuge in Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, and we also uh, are refuges for Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, vessels of the Dharma, the Buddha Dharma. And the last one in these three of these three, I take refuge in Sangha and in its wisdom, example and never failing help, and resolve to live in harmony with all sentient beings. Now in, in classical Buddhism, um, Sangha has two two different meanings, um, slightly different meanings. One is that, that it refers to um, the, the, the monks, the female and male monks, or home leavers. Um, the second way to interpret it, Sangha is that it refers to all awakened ones, so the Buddha and um, 
all the ahats, um, both 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 those who were householders and home leavers. But also found in the early scriptures um, and then became emphasized by Mahayana Buddhism was the idea of a fourfold Sangha, which was the female and male monks and the female and male um, householders, so bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasakas and upasikas. So that was a, a more a broader way of, of understanding Sangha. But for us, we broaden it still further. Um, we, can, we can think of the Sangha as being all people of goodwill, all people who are sincerely um, trying to do their best to live uh, a, a good life, you could say. And so that broadens it beyond followers of Buddhism. You could say you could find people, um, people of goodwill in all the different um, major faiths, probably mostly minor ones as well, and people of no faith, people of no religion, at least. And then we can broaden it even further than that and talk about all sentient and insentient beings. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about including in it all the elements that support our practice. So um, our cushion is, is Sangha, the Zendo, the space, um, the air we breathe, the light that shines in this room includes sounds we hear, our country, it's a relatively peaceful, safe environment for us to engage in practice and all that, all that is needed for, for that to exist. So again, we've, we, we um, look deeply into this and we find pretty much we have, we have the whole universe of sentient and insentient beings. So we can understand that Sangha in this, in this broad way and then we can just also just understand it as our community, our community of practice. And it can be very hard to keep practice going without a community, without like-minded spiritual friends to draw on. Thich Nhat Hanh again, he says, it is well worth investing in a Sangha if you sow seeds in arid land, few seeds will sprout. But if you select a fertile field and invest your wonderful seeds in it, the harvest will be bountiful. Building a Sangha, supporting a Sangha, being with a Sangha, receiving the support and guidance of a Sangha is the practice. We have individual eyes and Sangha eyes. 
When a Sangha lights, shines its light on our personal views, we see more clearly. In the Sangha, we don't fall so easily into negative habit patterns. Stick to your Sangha, take refuge in your Sangha, and you'll have the wisdom and support you need. When members of a Sangha live in harmony, their Sangha is holy. Don't think that holiness is only for the Pope or the Dalai Lama. Holiness is also within you and within your Sangha. When a community sits, breathes, walks and eats together in mindfulness, holiness is there. When you build a Sangha that has happiness, joy and peace, you'll see the elements of holiness in the Sangha. So, so, um, Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, they're all really, they really are treasures. Another uh, way that, that Sangha is understood is um, as harmony itself. We say in, the, in, the, in the, this vow, we vow to live, live in harmony with all um, sentient beings. And this harmony brings us, it's like a, we keep circling back, because the harmony brings us back to the precepts. These um, uh, three different ways of, of, you could say, ever deepening harmony. First, just avoiding harming, then coming into active kindness, and then um, finally um, rousing ourselves to wake up from our delusions in order to be able to help others to wake up from theirs. Well, our time is, is telling up. I haven't, um, can't go into each individual um, precepts, but um, perhaps looking at them in the light of some of the stuff we've talked about this evening will um, illuminate them further. So we'll, we'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gaze beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate 
Endless blind passions I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.